Hi, I'm Dan Lynch, and you can join myself and Aaron Newcomb uh, on Floss Weekly this week, where we talk to Dan Walsh from Red Hat about SE Linux, a security layer which sits on top of Linux. That's coming up next on Floss Weekly. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Floss Weekly is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Floss Weekly number 156, recorded March the 9th, 2011. SE Linux. It's time for Floss Weekly, the show about free Libre open source software. I'm your host for today. My name's Dan Lynch, and as you will probably be able to tell by my voice, I'm not Randall Schwartz, who's your regular host. Um, he's away uh, cruising at the moment, but he'll be back next week uh, and in charge again. So I've kind of made a little takeover this week. And I'm pleased to say I'm joined by, uh, by, co by fellow co-host uh, Aaron Newcomb, all the way from the Twit Cottage today. How's it going? Whoops, I lost my mic. There I am. Hey, very good. <laughs> no, it's, okay. it's, it's real good. It's a, it's a nice morning here in California, a nice cool morning, so it's uh, good to be here. Excellent. And uh, the, the topic on the slate today is SE Linux, which is a hardened security layer for uh, Linux systems, predictably from the name, and uh, it enables you to get really kind of fine-grained control over what your applications are doing, what your processes are doing, and obviously what your users are doing, which is very important in security, and all that kind of stuff. And um, I'm delighted to say we're going to be joined by Dan Walsh, who works for Red Hat. And uh, he's the lead developer of SE Linux, which has been around quite a while. Has some links to the NSA, which I'm curious to find out more about because, uh, you know, all these kind of secret service things always intrigue me. And uh, I think that will be very interesting. So um, should we get into it? Get right into it then? Yeah, absolutely. Let's get going because I've, you know, I've always had a lot of questions about why SE Linux is so important and why it keeps popping up on Red Hat and Fedora so often. Uh, so this will be, be a really interesting conversation. Okay, so let's bring on our guest for today. Uh, we're joined by Dan Walsh, who works at Red Hat, and uh, he works on SE Linux. So, uh, how are you doing, Dan? Great. Yeah, so where are we speaking to you from? Uh, I'm at my house in, uh, in a town called Marlboro, outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Oh, nice. I, I like your wallpaper there. I mean, I'm enjoying your wallpaper and decorative plates behind you. That's yeah. very cool. One of the things about doing this show kitchen. is we get to see people's houses. <laughs> we get to kind of check out people's houses as we do the show. Um, yeah, so I gave a, a brief um, introduction to SE Linux and uh, explanation of what it is at the start of the show. But to be honest, there's no one better to explain it than, uh, than yourself, I presume. So can we start off by giving us a little bit of a background on SE Linux, on what it is and uh, where it came from and so on? Right. Well, uh, they, I mean, the history of SE Linux is it was developed out of um, National Security Agency um, to, <clears throat> well, you, the fundamental thing you have to understand about the National Security Agency is there's two parts of it. There's a part that goes out and, and gathers information, um, and then there's another part that tries to prevent other people from gathering too much information from um, the United States. Mm -hmm. So the part that does that develop you know, the QR more safe, so they developed a architecture called SE Linux about probably about 15 years ago, um, and they wanted to basically make that into something that could uh, secure all computers in the, 
you know, in, in the United States and, you know, other of our partners or allies. Um, so they, they decided to do an open source project and they uh, worked with Red Hat and other people in the open source community to um, get this stuff out. Um, the, the fundamental thing to understand about SE Linux is it's a labeling system. And, and if you just think in terms of labels, there's labels on all processes on the computer and there's labels on all files on the computer. And, and then there's a whole bunch of rules about how the labels interact with the files or all objects on the system. And if you just always think of, I have a process that's labeled A and a file that's labeled B, and then I have a whole bunch of access rules that might be between the two objects. Um, when things go wrong with that Linux system, it tends to be something wrong with your labeling. Um, you know, you know, you know this, I have a couple of papers I wrote um, trying to describe this. But if we get people to understand at that fundamental level, level that either the process is labeled incorrectly or the file is labeled incorrectly, um, that might be what's causing your Linux problems. I mean, in when SE Linux is working well, it's basically take, you know, setting up an individual process that can only access. Nope. I think you may have just Actually, frozen. Sorry, only, um, access, for example, Apache content and not be able to access a database content or not be able to access um, secret files in your home directory. Hmm. So it sounds as if it's a bit uh, it's a bit like sandboxing uh, things to keep uh, you know to keep them safe and to keep other things safe from what they're doing is that a fair reflection in any way um, yeah I mean actually there's, uh, there's a, a product called the SQLite sandbox that's oh okay <laughs> so there you go later on but uh, not to confuse things but yeah I mean you can think of it as uh, I mean Sun has a pr uh, product called containers and, and our virtualization that are all different ways of, of doing all similar um, goals in these products is to take an application and, and make the application only able to do what it was designed to do or what it's supposed to be doing so that if there's a bug in the application the application can't go off and do something bad on the system so SE Linux is, is um, gives you incredible flexibility um, so you know you can do things like set up a um, again uh, an Apache server that the only way it can talk to the database is through um, a name port even if uh, even if there was a vulnerability in the Apache server that could get it to run as root it wouldn't be able to um, you know touch other uh, locations on your operating system and just be able to talk to the you know say the name pipe that talk to MySQL um, and and so we can get down to you know fundamental levels we can we can differentiate you know files but you know we can differentiate access we can basically allow append access to a file versus uh, write access to files things like that so you know it, it it's um, you know, uh, at a fine-grained level. Um, the other thing SQLinux can do is control network access and port access. So I can basically set up an Apache server that can only listen on port 80. Uh, and even if it got uh, taken over, it wouldn't be able to become a mail, you know, a mail spammer or something like that because it wouldn't be allowed to connect to the mail ports. Mm. Mm. So it's giving you much more granular control over security, effectively, on your uh, Linux system. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, basically, uh, uh, and, and we tend to, the, the policy distribution um, more so than by in, individual operators. And the, the main reason for that is because operators 
tend to want to make their applications work. So if you were writing policy for your application, most people say, well, my application has to be able, could be set up to read anywhere or write anywhere, it could be set up to listen to different ports, um, things like that. So app writers tend to write what we call unconfined policy. Um, whereas we, we want to write sort of the, the, the default way you configure your system is we want to write policy that says the system can only work the default way. Um, and you know if you want to change the default way you run your system, then you have to work with SE Linux and tell SE Linux you're going to change the defaults. Um, so we try to write and do things in secure. For instance, Apache can, you know, some people set up Apache to be able to send mail, but most people don't. So out of the box, Apache is not allowed to send mail. Um, you know, similar, you know, you know, uh, you know yeah, people like to change the port that uh, SSHD listens on. And, you know, if you want to change that port, you have to tell SC Linux about you. This commands to tell SC Linux that you're going to have SSHD listening on a different port than, you know, port 22. Now, mm. I was um, interested about the um, the NSA involvement. I don't know how much you, you can say about that, but uh, there was something, one of the kind of long-standing things that I'd always heard about SE Linux was that uh, there was a lot of involvement with the NSA, which is uh, the National Security Agency over in the US there. Um, so it was, I, th I think you actually said it was them who, who came up with the idea of starting the project, so it didn't come out of Red Hat or somewhere else, it was out of their need for it, is that right? Um, they, it, well, again, it was, yeah, the, the researchers worked for the NSA that originally developed the, the ideas. If you really mm. went back on the idea, the ideas actually came out from um, the 1970s. The idea of um, most of trusted computing, and, and both the, back in the 1970s, trusted computing was um, they developed three three basic concepts. One of them was called um, the Bellapagula model, and that that tends to deal with um, data at levels. So you have top secret data, secret data, and then you have rules about how the you know a top secret process cannot write to a, um, a secret process. A secret process can't read top secret data. Um, that That's one form of, of um, mandatory access control. Um, another form was the thing called role-based access control, which is um, you know, when I'm running at one role, I can run certain processes and read certain data. And then if I want to run, you want to uh, run different processes of different applications, I have to switch my role. Um, and that's called role-based access control. The third one was a thing called type enforcement. And SE Linux fundamentally is a thing called, is based on type enforcement. The other two types of mandatory access control, and I didn't define what mandatory access control, I'm sorry about mm. that, but the mandatory access mm. control means that the kernel makes all decisions on access. Access is not um, allowed to the individual process to decide. And it's called discretionary access control, which means that the process has discretion over all files that it owns. Um, and so a process can change the uh, permissions on a file, for instance. So if you ran Firefox, Firefox has the ability to change permission on all, pro all files that you own. In a mandatory access system, you have rules that the kernel's going to govern. So the kernel looks in and governs what you know, access decisions can be made. So the third type of mandatory access control that was defined in the 70s was a thing called type enforcement. And type enforcement governed 
um, more on the type of the application or the type of the process. So if you think of uh, an Apache process or a MySQL process or, or a user process, um, then you write rules about how that type can interact with other types, the types of the file. So that this is a uh, Apache content or this is a MySQL database or this is a, um, a file and uses home directory. Um, and, and so type enforcement was never developed until the NSA uh, took the ideas and they developed SE Linux around type enforcement. Now, over the years, we've worked with the NSA to further develop um, the type enforcement uh, features, and we've actually built out the RBAC role-based access control, and we have MLS or, or Bella Padula model. So now we have um, uh, different forms of policy depending on how you want to run your system. So in uh, um, back in uh, when RHEL 5 came out, we actually have an MLS system that can be used on um, the highest level security systems in the world and, you know, with the exact same kernel, exact same, um, you know, code base, we can run on, you know, my father's laptop and um, at his house. So we can run different types of policies and different types of rules depending on your security goals of, you know, what, where you're going to have your computer system. Now, that's different than, say, what Trusted Solaris had, which was, you know, there was a special operating system called Trusted Solaris. So in a, you know, SE Linux, people think there is a SE Linux system, but SE Linux is just part of Fedora or part of RHEL. Um, and actually, SE Linux is also available on uh, Debian, Ubuntu, Gentoo, um, and uh, a few other opera, a few other Linux distributions. Hmm. That, that's something I was actually going to ask you about because um, obviously I know you work for Red Hat and I know that from experience of using Fedora and other things that SE Linux uh, always comes with it. But uh, I was curious about how how easy it is to use on other systems, say Debian as you mentioned, or Ubuntu or whatever it might be. Um, presumably, that's a third-party packaging effort. Um, do you concentrate on Red Hat platform and so on, and, and let other people deal with packaging it for Debian or integrating it with Debian? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, um, I help out. I help out other distributions when they have problems and stuff. But you know, obviously, I'm I'm funded to work on. Most of my work is done on Fedora and 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 you know even on Rawhide, which is the daily Fedora. Um, and and but you know I work with the the community. I work with um, the people that are doing the ports to Ubuntu and to um, Suzy and uh, other other platforms. Um, yeah, I also obviously we take everything we do and, and and work to get it upstream so that we benefit all the distributions. And, and by the same token, we get benefits when other distributions do um, effort. You know, so you know it's just standard community work. Uh, the, as far as getting SE Linux onto the other distributions, it doesn't come by default like it does in, in uh, Fedora and, Red, and RHEL. Um, so you have to download it, you know, download special packages. I think there's a special distribution of Gentoo called Gentoo Hardened, and I forget Ubuntu version. Um, but there's, there's some pretty um, strong community leaders working on SE Linux on the other platforms as well. So, so this kind of brings me up to kind of some questions that I had about SE Linux. I mean, let's back up just a little bit and explain for people who uh, may not have run Red Hat uh, versions or Fedora what this looks like. How does it get presented to the user 
when they're installing Red Hat. Uh, you mentioned that on the other systems, it's, it's packaged. You have to ins you have to purposefully install it. But but on Red Hat and Fedora, how is SE Linux presented? How does it get installed? Um, ba basically, it's just there. It's not. Um you, know, you have to act, act, actively work to get it turned off. I, I would equate it to sort of like the way we run firewalls. And that, you know, the goal of SE Linux and the goal of firewalls is that they don't get in, in, in the face of, of the average user. Um, you know, that's what our goal is. And SE Linux tends to have more problems with sort of advanced admins that like to change everything the way the way everything works in the system. So you know, out of the box, the SE Linux experience should be that you don't even know SE Linux is running it. And actually, if you look at Smolt numbers, which are uh, numbers we gather of how people run um, Fedora systems, it's somewhere above 70% um, of the people run with SE Linux in enforcing mode. Um, you know, the system's locked down with it out of the box. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it's not so much that you would even see it unless you tried to run it, tried to change the basic configuration of, say, the Apache system worked or uh, other parts of the system. Now, user accounts, by default, we log in users with what we call unconfined mode, which means that a user can do anything they want on the computer system out of the box. We have find users, which allows you to sort of lock down um, users on the computer system to different levels. But um, out of the box, we, we run with the unconfined users. So users that log into a computer system directly, have the ability to pretty much do what they could do disabled. Um, it's more that you know, we, we lock down the um, other processes on the computer system, usually the network-based um, network listening processes on the computer system. Right. And, and it's, been, it's been a little while since I've run Red Hat. I mean, is this still presented on install? Do you still get presented with an SE Linux configuration screen on install? No, that's it. it um, I think at RHEL 5, we still present the ability to turn it off. But um, in, a, in an effort to simplify the installation procedure over the years in Fedora, we've we've turned off lots of to um, you know configure during the install. Um, so right now you you have to go in after the install and, and turn off SE Linux if you wanted to disable it. Or I mean you could also do it via Kickstart. So if you were doing a Kickstart install, you can disable it. But yeah, there's no there's no screen that comes up and tells you. We do have a tool called SE Troubleshoot that when something happens on the system that you know SE Linux um, blocks or notices, um, a little icon will appear in the top of the screen to um, uh, tell you that SE Linux did something. And if you uh, click on the icon, it will try to describe what SE Linux blocked and try to it tries to figure out how to uh, fix, you know, tries to figure out what happened and mechanisms to change, uh, to fix it. So the, the idea would be if you decided to change Apache to listen to port 8081 and you ran Apache and SE Linux said that's not allowed, this little tool would come up and say, hey, we know to to listen on port 8081. Here's the SE Linux commands to, to allow that to happen. Um, if you didn't intend to listen on port 8081, then you, know, you might have a, uh, something going very strange on your computer system. You might want to look further into it. Right. That's a tool called right. SE Troubleshoot. So you've, you've been working on this since, since the beginning, right? I mean, you've been working on this for, for, um, since the early days of, of Red Hat, correct? Yeah, I've, uh, I joined Red Hat in um, basically 2001, 
and I started working on Nessie Linux um, in 2002. Um, so yeah, we, uh, the first time Nessie Linux, I, I actually worked with Nessie Linux in Fedora Court. Um, and Nessie Linux actually uh, first showed up on in Fedora Core 3. And frank, frankly, it was, it was pretty rough at that time. Matter of fact, you know, even through RHEL 4, Nessie um, Linux, we were just learning how to deal with this thing. Um, and uh, so at, over, over the years, Nessie Linux has gotten um, better and better. And I, I don't believe that you could have done a thing like Nessie Linux without having, you know, open source and, and the ability to, um, you know, work with the community and my Fedora testers and things like that. Cause we, we really, this policy has sort of evolved to the, the way applications work and the understanding has, has worked. But yeah, I've been working on SD Linux now for about eight years. And when you started, um, when you started working on it, I mean, um, I mean, I know you talked about the NSA's involvement and, and some, some things, concerns that they had. Um, but when you started working on it, were you new to security or was this something that, that you'd have been working on a long time but previously to this? Well, well, my, my, um, history is I actually worked on sort of security products for the last 25 years. I worked on, um, you know, the Alta Vista project back at, at digital time when I was oh, working yeah. on yep. uh, tunneling and firewall products back then. I've also worked on, um, intrusion detection systems with companies called Bindview and NetTech that all got, ended up getting bought out by Symantec. So I've been working in security-based um, products for many, 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 many years. Um, this is the first time I worked in uh, sort of trusted computing or um, mandatory access control type computing right. uh, was after I came to Red Hat. Right. So, so here's a question then. I mean, just given your history on this, I'm kind of curious. I've always, always wondered about this. And that is why, um, so as a user of, of Fedora and Red Hat for a long time, it always kind of bothered me that SE Linux was presented when it seemed to be more geared towards, uh, you know, um, server environments or, um, uh, you know, special security situations. And I, I guess I'm kind of curious, was, it, was there a backlash a little bit against all the viruses that were coming into the Windows space, the, the Microsoft space? Was it kind of seen as, hey, we need to jump on this so that we don't end up in the same situation that, that Microsoft um, is? Because at the time, of course, they've gotten better, but Microsoft, especially Windows, was, was ridden with viruses and uh, all kinds right. of stuff back in the day. So I'm just kind of curious, was there a little bit of a, of a concern at that point to say, look, we need to get ahead of this in the Linux space before we end up in the same situation as Microsoft? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, I, I sort of explained at the beginning of the talk about why, you know, the NSA was developed this, but, you know, I, I never really explained why Red Hat, you know, wanted to invest so heavily in, in SE Linux. And, and, and what you explained is sort of, you know, the main goal was to, you know, the, the RHEL and, and, and Red Hat products, we, we like to think of ourselves and we like to advertise ourselves to be much more secure than the competition. Um, so, so, you know, what we want to do is we, we always invest in making, you know, increasing the security of, of Linux. Um, you know, and if you look at the Red Hat's history and the development, you know, the things we've added to 
uh, firewall, IP tables, things uh, around, you know, making uh, TLIPC more secure. Um, you know, lots and lots of effort. Red Hat spends a lot of money to try to make uh, Linux the safest and most secure operating system out there. And the SE Linux system just followed on to that. So, the, you know, the SE Linux was, you know, most, most of it just, most of RHEL's money is made on the server end. So, yeah, SE Linux came in to help make the server side more secure. Um, but you know, we also always had the goal to make you know the the client the client experience more secure, and and you know, leads me to some of the new technology we have now. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but we have a tool called the SQL Sandbox, um, which allows you to run um, you know desktop applications under total lockdown mode. So so um, you know, one example is say you want to run multiple versions of Firefox, and you wanted to secure. Um, you know, have, have, say, Firefox that goes to your online banking be separated from Firefox that goes to, um, you know, uh, sort of the random sites you go on the internet. Well, you can set that up with SQLX Sandbox. You can run full desktop environments where the desktop environments can't talk to each other. And that's at the choice of, of the user. Uh, one of the things I do inside of my, um, you know, one of the things you have to worry about Download sort of untrusted content from the from the internet. Um, so you download a PDF or a doc file uh, from the internet, and you want to basically view and maybe print that document. Well, when you download that document, that document can cause, say, your Acro read or your events to go off and do evil things on your desktop. Um, what I set up is sandbox um, events or, um, to look at PDFs, and it runs a sort of a totally separate uh, desktop environment where I can view my, um, um, you know, the PDF that I downloaded, but the PDF can't touch anything in my home directory, it can't talk to the network, it can't do anything except, you know, display inside of its own X window, um, its content, and, and allow me to print from it. So you can start moving towards the desktop um, environment and, and building tools that people can build more and more secure desktops. So yeah, they, I mean, the main goal with SE Linux is obviously to increase the security, and that's you know, um, of the entire of the entire operating system. Right. Uh, as we move forward now um, with SE Linux, we're looking at um, you know, more and more processes, having more and more processes running their system with sort of the exact same rights, except they want them totally isolated. And the, the, the uh, main one that people talk about now is virtualization. So if you run 10 uh, virtual machines inside of your, uh, say, your desktop or inside, you want all those virtual machines to have the same, uh, you know, same type, but you want to make sure those virtual machines can't talk to each other through anything but the network, right? You don't want a virtual machine uh, being able to break out of its confinement or break out of the hypervisor and able to attack other virtual machines. Um, so we've developed a thing called SVIRT, which is secure virtualization. And you know, what that's really using is SQL Linux for isolation. So um, now when you run uh, a, a Fedora platform or a RHEL platform, uh, run our virtualization suite, we're using SQL 
likes to make sure all the virtual machines can't talk to each other. So the only way they can talk to each other is through the network. Um, you know, Sandbox, the SLX Sandbox is using the same idea that you might run five different Firefoxes and you want to make sure that none of those Firefoxes can talk to the other Firefox processes. Um, so we're looking at, you know, how can we isolate individual, you know, multiple processes that all pretty much have the same type of access rights from each other. So does um, Sandbox run at the at the hypervisor layer then, or is there a way to run? Uh, no. Uh, sandbox is running below the sandbox is more at the process level. So an X uh, 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 Linux sandbox or the X window sandbox actually launches off a new version of Zephyr, Zephyr using um, namespacing to create uh, overrides a temp, and then sets up in a, a full user environment inside of um, its its little uh, Zephyr window. So you, you could think of it as being a sort of a low-level low virtualization or an application virtualization environment in that, you know, it's getting its own home directory, its own temp directory, its own X-Windows server, and using SC Linux to confine what that process is able to do. Now, from the user's point of view, it looks just like a normal application running on the desktop. It's just, you know, that that application is, you know, does not see the rest of the desktop. It only sees its own sort of window of virtualized world. With SVIRT is, is doing similar technology, but in this case, we're doing it at the QMU level. So we're taking each one of the QMU processes and putting labels on it and, and making sure that the QMU process, you know, one QMU process can only talk to its virtual image. It can't talk to other people's virtual image. And, and we're using, you know, that's that's a thing called SVIRT. Same basic technology, or the SC Linux is, is very similar between the two. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one's using KVM and virtualization, the other one's using um, it's just sort of the standard Linux tools that are available, things like unsharing and, and mounting and, and um, using additional X servers. Right, right. Okay. So, uh, one more question for you, and that is, um, since we've got, in the, in the Linux community in general, since we have, you know, obviously Red Hat and Fedora are, are using SE Linux by default, um, and I, I don't believe that many of the other distributions are using it by default, although it's available. I'm just wondering, has there, have you seen or do you, are you aware of, um, uh, is it the case that, that the other distributions are uh, being compromised more often or, or have more vulnerabilities and, and people are taking advantages of that? Um, I mean, do you see that? Or is there evidence of that? Or are we protecting ourselves against um, a threat that isn't actually out there? I mean, I, I, I'm not familiar with, we have, there's, there's some sites that list all the vulnerabilities that SC Linux has blocked over the years, and I've never gone and looked at to see if, if other people's, I mean, these are Linux, these are Linux vulnerabilities. Um, Ubuntu and, and um, Suzy adopted a, a package called AppArmor, and um, they, um, they, uh, as their default, although I believe they have it turned off by default or have a very limited uh, amount of coverage. So I've never looked to see if, if their default um, mandatory access system would block um, the same type of access um, that SC Linux has blocked in the, in the past. I think overall Linux is, is more secure. I mean, there's, there's two number of vulnerabilities. Well, there's, I shouldn't say there's two reasons, multiple reasons that Linux, uh, that Linux doesn't have the vulnerabilities of, say, Windows. And, and one is just the sheer volume of Windows. You know, it's, it's like the old line about, you know, why do you run 
money as well. There's so many running uh, millions of desktops running Windows. So that's where the viruses and attack routes go against. Um, the second issue is, you know, obviously Linux is because it's open source. You know, the, the many eyes idea that you know many many people examine the code and, and therefore it runs. Um, um, you know, it's, it's more secure because of that. Lastly, would be I, w I would say that the Unix model is tends to be more secure than than the Windows model just from their, their history. But you know, and you know, as Linux blocks certain types of, of access, uh, certain types of attacks, it's like App Armor can't block. So you know. Um, yeah, it, it's it, yeah, it, it, it's. Every layer of the computer system makes the computer more secure. Um, you know, I, I don't think Linux is exactly hugely vulnerable with S Linux turned off, but you know, um, you know, I, I look at, at security through layers, right? You know, I have run firewalls, I run, um, uh, you know, S Linux, I run, you know, in my house we don't have any Windows boxes running anymore, even though I have. You know, teenage children—they uh, all run Linux because you know I, I want the as secure a system as possible. And mm. um, so, something that um, I imagine a lot of BSD fans will be screaming right now is—is is, is what about BSD? I know your your uh, SE your, your product's called SE Linux, and you're focusing on the Linux side. But I heard recently um, that uh, the FBI and some other agencies in the U.S. were pushing things like OpenBSD. Have you had any interaction with any of those groups at all? Um, and you mentioned the Unix model, obviously the other. A slightly similar I mean, model. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, well, first of all, there is an SC Linux port for BSD as well. Okay. Um, yeah, but, uh, I mean, you know, some, I may, most of our major, uh, you know, the, the customers I deal with the most often tend to be, you know, people in the Department of Defense and FBI and things like that that are obviously using SC Linux uh, mm. quite heavily. So, uh, I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's good in having diversity of operating system and, and each, you know, the, the nice thing about Linux is, is uh, my, in my belief, is that we, we get, take the best ideas from different operating systems and, and put them into Linux, as, you know, especially towards security. So, you know, BSD has some nice features that they've added and, um, and um, you know, I don't know what else to say about that. <laughs> no, that, that's, that's that's cool. I just uh, I knew there'd be people out there wanting to wanting to know about that, so I had to get that one in. And speaking of people out there wanting to know things, we've got a IRC channel uh, running at the moment, and there are people asking questions in there. So I've kept them waiting long enough. So I think I'd better get to some of okay. some of the listener questions. Um, uh, okay, so we have a question from Troubled, um, who asks, um, how does this compare in features and auditing abilities to something like GR Security? Uh, any ideas on that? Well, I mean, you know, it's GS security works on on different different levels. GS security is trying to um, you know, further secure the kernel um, and and does different types of things. So um, I, I believe that some of the features of GS security has never gotten accepted into the upstream uh, upstream kernel. So. Um, and you know, that's sort of a fundamental problem with it. Um, you know, GS security, try, you know, one of the, the things about SC Linux is SC Linux relies on the kernel for enforcement. And what the GS security people would say is that a vulnerability in the kernel, you know, 
potentially would allow you to, you know, subvert an SE Linux system. We've actually had um, vulnerabilities in the kernel that, you know, have allowed people to get by SE Linux. Um, and GS Securities is, their goal is to, um, you know, to sort of compartmentalize the kernel itself and, you know, sort of like what the, uh, uh, the old back guys were doing as far as, you know, uh, you know trying to break apart the you know, security, the, break down the security of the kernel so the different, you know, the kernel runs at different levels and things like that. But, the, you know, again, the uh, geosecurity patches have never gotten into the upstream kernel and, you know, for whatever reason. And we would love to have, you know, some of those ideas moved into the kernel and, and hopefully eventually, you know, some, some of the better ideas will get, get into it. Mm. Um, another quick question from the IRC channel is um, how much, do you have any idea how much overhead and this adds to your uh, running SE Linux would add to your typical system. Is there any performance overhead to be uh, taken into account with this? Yeah, the I've been answering that question for years, <laughs> and, and um, right. there is no uh, great answer. We we used to always say five percent overhead, and and a lot of those numbers are made up. Um, you know, it, when, when we've done tests, depending on your workload, we've seen, uh, you know, it, it, you can make a very, very horrible test um, that makes SE Linux perform at, you know, 10 to 15 percent overhead. And, but for most general tests, it's, it's in the weeds. You can't even tell what's happening. What SE Linux does is when it makes an access check, it looks it up once in the, so, so say you read a file off of a system. Uh, when you uh, open the file to read that access checked whether the process labeled A can read file labeled B. Um, that gets stored in an access cache and now from from then on every time you further read that file it's just it's just hitting the cache constantly. So there's so much caching put into SE Linux that you know there isn't a, a big overhead uh, put on the system. Now, now in certain workloads you might be able to you know um, you know, figure out some horrible workload that would SE Linux would, would come into uh, be a problem. But, you know, and that really we're talking about CPU here and, and you know, the, the most systems, the CPU is, you know, to, you know, you have totally way under utilizing of the CPU on the computer, on modern computer systems. So I, I, I don't think, I, I mean, I would just say test test with SE Linux and test without it. Um, I don't, mm. I don't, you know, the people, uh, customers that are using SE Linux tend to be, you know, we have Wall Street customers using it, and obviously they need, you know, incredible throughputs, and SE Linux does not give them a problem in those systems. Large banks, you know, obviously Department of Defense, um, you know, people that are really into performance use SE Linux, so I don't think it's a big problem. Mm. Um, and uh, I suppose this is probably another question that you get asked quite a lot, but um, one of the things I hear most uh, from other Linux users in relation to SE Linux is, um, you know, when they come to use it on their home desktop or something, a lot of people find it very confusing. Is it really aimed at the home desktop? Do, do people need to use it on the home desktop? And how can you make it easier or how have you made it easier for people to understand? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. SQ Linux obviously has, has evolved over the years. So, um, and, and one of the sad things is that people that used SQ Linux four, five, six years ago, you know, got an opinion of it and and have mm. sort of stuck to that opinion, you know. And and so, I, I would just say that you know most most users never even in that way. Um, you know, it 
Um, you know, it, as I said, the people that tend to have it, the people that have the biggest problem with SE Linux are people that do development type things. Um, you know, kernel developers have, have traditionally had problems with it because they're always installing new kernels and then they screw up their labeling in the system and, and SE Linux starts complaining. But for actually for a home user, that's usually, you know, it, my, what I would call a home user is, is someone that just, you know, gets on a computer and uses it to access the web and, um, Asking Linux would never get in the way of that type of person. Where it gets in the way of is, just, you know, if you're running a service or, or you know, certain types of, um, you know, wacky environments. Uh, what we have done in the past is try to make uh, sort of the unconfined user more confined, um, and you know, occasionally in Fedora we've we've made mistakes or, or people have downloaded bad applications. Right? And tried to prevent is, is sort of buffer overflow memory attacks um, and there's a bunch of checks uh, to look at um, you know a, a system that we think is having a buffer overflow attack um, the problem is that there's lots and lots of badly written applications out there um, and and usually they tend to be closed sourced um, code say like nvidia drivers and things like that that um, do these executable memory um, uh, and, you know, executable memory is memory that's both writable and executable at the same time. And if you do a buffer overflow, it would be to write to a portion of memory that, um, and then execute the code that you wrote into it. And so the checks that SQLinux has put into place for those have sometimes caused some of these applications to blow up. And that would be tend to be the only time that a user, a normal user, would get um, uh, hit by these types you know, types of problems. Um, and, but a lot of those checks we've we've actually decided to turn off over the years because you know it, it's very difficult to um, take take a system like SE Linux and make it work for everybody. Um, yeah, but, I suppose yeah. that one size fits all thing doesn't really apply in this case, does it? Right. It's, it's very difficult. You never know what each person's going to do with their system at any time. Um, yeah. I mean, it's one thing I hear quite a lot from people with desktops and stuff is how how do they just disable it? Um, that must be really annoying for you when, when you put a lot of work into something and then people just switch it off. And does, does that ever get to you? Uh, no, I, matter of fact, when people say that to me, I use um, But, uh, you know, you know, it's the same people that also believe that, you know, there's sort of a hubris of, of um, Unix people out there that think that they totally understand how um, computer systems work and they write in their machine in such a secure way that they are invulnerable to attack. And, and for those if you if you if you believe that you you know totally run your environment in a totally secure manner, then, then go ahead, turn it off. Um, again, you know, I, I tend to believe that in security and layers. Um, what I what I do find funny is that you know people is that difficult, and and yet you know, um, you know, I, I see it as fairly simple. Obviously, I've been working on it forever, um, but there's lots and lots of information out there. There's lots of people that are willing to help you, um, you know, to, to fix the problem. This you know. Um, um, the problems that SLX will, will get in. I, I actually blog quite heavily on a, a site called danwalsh.livejournal.com and um, uh, I've actually written uh, blogs over the years talking about uh, the, the fight between security and usability and, and even though we you know, get more and more um, good ideas around you know, making things secure, um, it always ends up 
you know, uh, distributions and things like that end up turning them off by default. So, for instance, when, when Solaris came up with the idea of uh, compartmentalized, you know, environments, you know, they turned it off by default or, or you know, Ubuntu shipping with, uh, you know, their security layers turned off. Um, and, and the reason for this is because, you know, people feel security is hard and makes the system more difficult to use. But, you know, so how do you end up making security easier is to actually turn it on and figure out how, how to make the system work. Um, you know, what can we do to make security easy for the user? How can you educate the user? Um, and, and that's sort of what we've been working on all these years with SE Linux. And... Successful in some degrees, we we haven't. I think one of the things you know, at least in the last couple of years, I've been trying to do is to get get technology in into the you know, a lot a lot of the people say, well, SC Linux doesn't protect you know the user account and and no, it doesn't protect um, you know me logged on the system, so why do I have it? Well, what people don't understand is when they're running a desktop box, they have a, a service called Avahi running in the background, or they have a service uh, SSSD running in the background, and, and all these other system-based services running on the system, and um, you know, you're vulnerable to attacks through those those routes. Um, you know, so SC Linux, even on a desktop system, is protect, potentially protecting a bug in Avahi from taking over your computer or a bug in and, um, SSHD and other services from you know, attacking your computer. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult subject because, as you say, um, I think any, uh, one of the key rules in security is anybody who thinks they're you know, beyond attack or completely secure is, is riding for a fall, as they say. Um, it's always a difficult thing. Um, one thing I was curious about, kind of on an organizational uh, level almost, is how many people actually work on, on SE Linux because I know you work for uh, Red Hat and you work on SE Linux. Is there anybody else working on it there? Yeah, we have... Um I mean, at full-time employees that work on SE Linux and Red Hat uh, are really just four of us. Um, there's two kernel engineers, Eric Paris and James Morris, and myself, and Miroslav Greppel uh, work on policy. But in one form or another, you know, we, we did the original um, for the secure virtualization, but now the you know the virtualization teams all handle the the um, you know the SC Linux work on that. We work with the IPA teams, other teams inside of Red Hat. Um, you know, uh, uh, for instance, System D, which is the new um, booting system that's coming in. Um, Fedora Core 15 is lots and lots of SC Linux intelligence built into that, and, and so we've worked with the you know with the, the developers of that to, to put the SC Linux uh, controls in that. Uh, you know, you have tools like UDEV that have to do labeling and other you know RPM. So you know, lots and lots of people inside of Red Hat you know do SC Linux work. Uh, if not every day, but they do it fairly regularly. They have to understand how the SC Linux system works. Plus QA, um, you know, uh, we have a rule inside of, inside of Red Hat that you know no products can any, any of the test suites that run have to be checked to see if they generate an SC Linux error message when they ran, and they you know we will not ship a update to RHEL that you know uh, that can't have all its tests run without an SC Linux error happening. So, so it's how you so it's four full time uh, SC Linux people, and then. Okay. 
that's the company. Does anybody from outside work on it? I mean, uh, I imagine that's something that intrigued me about this, with it being such a, a core security product that um, obviously it's an open source product. But uh, can you realistically take patches from the community and so on with it with the security angle? Is that a risk? Yeah, I mean, we yeah, yeah we actually work quite heavily with the um, upstream. When we started works first working with the NSA on this, we really told the NSA that we didn't want them just to throw it over the wall and, and disappear. So the NSA still has five or six um, researchers working on different parts of, of SE Linux, as well as uh, there's a company called Tracis that has many, many engineers working on SE Linux. And um, we have people at IBM, HP, um, other companies like Trusted Computing um, Solutions. It's sort of just, there's a guy named Dominic Rift who I don't even know who he is other than he answers SE Linux questions all the time and we work heavily with him. Um, you know, it's like the old, you know, SC, the old joke about you never know who you're working with it could be on the internet, it could be a dog. Um, you know, there's, there's lots and lots of people. Um, we have a community of tests constantly watching for SE Linux errors and SE Linux um, and you know, they contribute constantly. Um, so, yeah, I would say the SE Linux community is, is very much alive and very vibrant. Um, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty good community to work with. So if people want to become part of that community and maybe get involved in the development, how do they, how do they go about that? Um, you know, just basically there's pound SE Linux on, I, um, on an IRC. We're out there all the time. You can come, you know, there's two mailing lists, um, well, there's a Fedora SE Linux mailing list. Then there's, there's the developers SE Linux mailing list. Just come and join those mailing lists. Um, you know, the code is, is available if you want to write policy or want to lock down an application. Um, we have tools to do that. Um, you know, you know, you can learn, learn how to, you know, Write policy. The, the easiest way is to learn how to write policy, um, and to contribute that way. Um, we have other people that are, you know, looking at the actual code, the, the libraries involved. Um, you know, trying to you know, work with those, uh, and and obviously the QA or the, the help helping us make sure that you know each Fedora release is is running with SD Linux well, and um, you know that you know contribute that way. But you know, I'm all. Anybody wants to send me a patch for anything, I'll examine the patch and I'll apply it if possible or get it to upstream and then we'll, we suck in the upstream um, new developments. Sounds very cool, yeah. Um, I, have, I have a question that, um, I, to be honest, I probably could have looked up the answer to, but I'm far too lazy for that. Um, what, what license is SE Linux actually under then? Is it GPL or, or how does that work? Yeah, it, it, for the most part, I would call it GPL. Um, the certain uh, certain libraries are, are public domain. Um, it, I mean, it, it, there is again. We're talking about SE Linux like it was like the, there is an SE Linux. There is no SE Linux. It's <laughs> it's a right. it's a uh, you know rel. Um, not they, they they take the SC Linux. So SC Linux is everything from policy to core libraries to kernel kernel features, um, and some of those have different licensing. But they're they're either GPL or public domain. Hmm. Okay, cool. And um, I suppose to, just to kind of uh, bring us towards the, the the wrap up, can you tell us a bit about the the future of SC Linux? Any new things that are uh, exciting about it that, you, about that you're working on? 
Yeah, I mean, we talked a little bit about um, uh, you know sort of the sandboxing stuff and the, and the idea of secure virtualization. Um, we're we're basically looking, you know, as we move into virtualization, how, how can we use IC Linux to better control what happens in virtualization? What I'm also working on now is networking controls. Um, you know, the, the, one of the experiments or paper I've just written is talking about, can I, can I run a system where um, I separate out my network in such a way that I say, you know, only these processes can talk to the internet and these processes can talk to the internet. And so, uh, so a better explanation would be that, you know, I have certain processes in my computer that, that talk to Red Hat um, internal sites for, say, authorization, authentication, um, and um, then I have other processes that talk to sort of the general internet. Um, can I write policy that says that my Firefox can talk to any website Authorization database can only talk to you know the LDAP server inside of Red Hat, um, and that way, if I took my um, computer system out to a public network somewhere, you know I can have certain processes that can't can't uh, communicate at all with you know any processes but the Red Hat processes. You know based on uh, so it's sort of combining IP tables rules to SE Linux rules, so we can get sort of you know, again IP tables for our processes. Um, another ex uh, example of that might be, again, sandboxing. Um, say, say I wanted to set up a user for my daughter that she could only go to certain websites. Um, so we could write rules that says that you know, uh, you know, her her web browser can go to Nickelodeon, um, you know, Disney Disney Channel and uh, Bobby.com, and not go to any other sites that I don't know about, and, and govern that via SE Linux instead of you know sort of having to rely on some kind of third-party proxies and things. And on the same system, I have my Firefox that can go to any any site I want. The last use case for that would be around um, you know there was an attack last year, and um, I think it was Firefox Flash plugin where Flash was was allowed to redirect, um, was following redirect orders from a website. So if you think about, um, you know, you're, you're inside your private network and you go out to a website and that website contacts your Flash plugin and tells Flash plugin, hey, go grab data off of, you know, secret.redhat.com on your internal website. Um, a bug in Firefox and, um, and, and Flash allowed that to happen. Now, what I'd like to be able to do is, is sort of run my an internal Firefox and an external Firefox on the same desktop, so that you know if I if I'm on the external Firefox, I can't talk to any of my internal sites, and I'm on the internal Firefox, I can't talk to any of the external sites. Um, so if you you know think about that, I can eliminate totally eliminate that type of attack vector, um, you know, at at the web browser level. Now, the ultimate goal there would be to get to tab to to put that into tabs. So if I was in a tab and I decided to talk to an internal, uh, you know, say to RedHat.com while I'm, you know, on the ESPN.com, it would, you know, open up a new tab. That tab would be isolated from the other tabs. Um, so each one of the processes could get isolated and not be able to, you know, have that cross-contamination. So looking at, you know, I'm interested in looking at how we use these SNLS controls at, at, at sort of the network level or, or, again, combining IP tables and, and uh processing labeling together. Mm. It sounds like there's some really exciting things in the in the pipeline for SE Linux and uh, 
Although, although security, for some reason, um, some people don't find it a very, I don't know, I don't know what the word is, I'm going to use it anyway, a very sexy topic. People say it's not very exciting, it's not very sexy, but we all need security, you know, we all need a little security. So I think it's very important that, um, that you're doing all this work on it. And uh, I have a couple of quick questions that Randall always likes to ask guests, um, some more light-hearted questions, I suppose. But um, he's a big Emacs uh, advocate, and uh, his, one of his big questions is always Emacs or VI. So there you go, Emacs or VI. <laughs> Definitely Emacs. I'm an old guy. <laughs> Definitely Emacs. Cool, cool. Um, excellent. So, um, thanks very much, Stan, for, for coming on and talking to us about SE Linux. Is there anywhere people can go to get more information? Um, presuming, I know they can find yeah. about it on Red Hat and Fedora and so on. Um, where, where should people go if they want yeah, to find I out mean, my, I mentioned earlier my blog is at danwallstadlivejournal.com. I'll be giving a two-hour talk at the Red Hat Summit in Boston in May uh, on writing SE Linux policy. Um, you know, I also have a Twitter. I'm Ahat Dan um, on Twitter. So if you want to follow me, that you know, anybody wants to contact me, dwalshredhat.com. I'm also I'm also speaking at uh, in uh, um, Linux Tag in, in May. I'll be in uh, Germany. So anybody in Europe that wants to see me at Linux Tag, I'm giving a, a I think a talk on sandboxing. Excellent. Sounds good. So, um, thanks very much for joining us, Dan, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Okay. Hey, thanks. talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Yeah, so um, a very interesting topic, I thought, actually. Um, very technical, and uh, I know a, a few people when we were talking about this show were saying to me, how are you going to uh, make this interesting? But I thought that was really fascinating, and I think, um, as I said, security is a very important topic. I don't know. What do you reckon, Aaron? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, again, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of jokes about it not being sexy and, well, you need protection and all this kind of stuff. But, yeah, um, yeah. you know, it is it, it is something that's important. And, and I think that people um, maybe are starting to forget the days of, uh, you know, Windows 95 and uh, 98 and XP where, you know, the, those security releases that came out um, every Tuesday were critical because there was a, a, a new virus or, or something that was infecting your computer on a weekly basis. And, in fact, uh, you know, some of the news from last week where, um, <clears throat> you know, we saw that there was some, some uh, attempts to hack into uh, WordPress, I believe it was. Um, and the assumption was that, that it was all based on Windows computers over in Asia, um, you know, that were running uh, either pirated versions of Windows that hadn't been uh, uh, protected uh, correctly with the latest patches and things. So, I mean, you know, I guess for me, it's uh, something that I've always felt uh, uh, belligerent about the fact that SE Linux was always popping up and when I would install Fedora and it was kind of a hassle. But in fact, it is something that um, is good. I mean, why not have another layer of protection on your systems? Mm. Yeah, and that was why I wanted to ask about the, um, the home user question, because that is something that I hear a hell of a lot is you know, what is this and why does it keep popping up and how do I switch it off and so on. But um, maybe we should make more effort to kind of educate people about what it actually is and why it's there and, and why they should maybe take notice of when it pops up and tells them that something bad's going on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. it's kind of funny because Security Now is coming up and uh, uh, it mm. kind of would have been nice to get Steve Gibson in on this conversation. <laughs> uh, it's yeah. a little early for him, but it would have been nice to get him involved in the conversation because uh, I'm sure he would have had some, uh, some interesting uh, points to make as well. 
Yeah, definitely. And, uh, yep, and uh, it would have been interesting to hear what he had to say, but uh, as you say, he's probably uh, still in bed at the moment. No, he's probably not. <laughs> yeah, he's probably not. <laughs> joke. Yeah, um, yeah so uh, next week uh, we've got uh, another show. Randall's back in charge, so you'll be relieved to hear that. Uh, that's the uh, 16th of March, Wednesday the 16th of March. Um, we'll have uh, Michael Yap, who's coming on to talk about yogurt. I think you pronounced that. It's J-O-G, uh, I can't even say the letters. J-O-G-E-T. Um, yogurt, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pronounce that. And uh, apparently it's an open source workflow management system and process-driven application builder. So that sounds interesting. Um, on March the 23rd, we've got uh, Darren Schrieber. is uh, coming on to talk to us about 2600 Hertz project, uh, which is um, a, a system that helps you to build open source VoIP solutions. Um, I uh, I got the 2600 hertz joke uh, after I visited their website. It's very common in uh, in VoIP and so on. Um, yeah, and then uh, to round out the, the, this quarter of shows uh, this year, we've got uh, Gilad Bracker, who's coming on on March the 30th to uh, talk about Newspeak, which is a new programming language, apparently, which is uh, in the tradition of self and small talk. And uh, I know Randall's been doing a fair amount of small talk stuff, and he's uh, he's been getting quite into small talk, so I imagine he'll be... It'll be interested to talk about that. Um, if you go to twit.tv slash floss, you can find uh, a link to the spreadsheet there, the Google spreadsheet, which shows upcoming guests and so on. And uh, if you uh, see a name, on, oh, sorry, I, I was, I'm doing what Randall does. If you, uh, if you think there's a name missing from that list that you'd like to, you'd like to uh, get on there, the best thing to do is to contact the project leader and uh, have them email Randall. And his address is merlin at stonehenge.com. That's Merlin at Stonehenge.com, Merlin with a Y. And uh, if, you, uh, if you can get the project leader to email Randall, then that's the best way for them to jump to the top of the ever-growing queue. And as Randall always says, um, you know, you could do this show almost daily because there's so many open source projects out there. And so, yep, if you, if you think there's something that, you, uh, that we're missing that we need, to, we need to hear about, then please go and do that. Um, yep, so uh, for myself, coming up, I've, uh, I've, got, uh, I've been getting into preparations for OGCAMP, which is... Uh, uh, an event that I'm running in the UK uh, with the Linux Outlaws and uh, Ubuntu UK podcast. We did it last year as well. Uh, it's an open source kind of bar camp thing, so we'll have more information on that soon. Um, if you go to Og, Og Camp, that's Og as in Og Vorbis. Um, it's an interesting name. Don't ask where it came from. Um, yeah, if you go to ogcamp.org, you can find out more about that. And uh, speaking of events, I'm also organizing a, a gig, a, a large Creative Commons music gig to do with my Rat Hole Radio music show, which is going to be in Liverpool in the UK on uh, Sunday, April the 24th, which is actually Easter Sunday uh, here in the UK. And uh, I'll be playing along with some other people. Uh, we've got loads of great guests coming. If you go to ratholeradio.org slash gig, you can find out more about that if you're in the UK and you're near enough to come down. Um, and as always, you can always find out uh, everything that I'm doing at uh, danlynch.org, which is my main address, uh, my main website. And there's links on there to Linux Outlaws and all the other uh, various things that I do. Um, so uh, have a look on there, and you can find Twitter links and uh, identical links and so on. Now, um, what have you been up to lately, Aaron? I believe you've been to uh, Scale, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. I uh, was at Scale uh, uh, two weekends ago, and uh, Randall and I were both down there and uh, did a podcast from down there. It has, I'm right in the middle of editing now. Uh, right. So uh, hopefully, uh, you know, by uh, by this time next week, there'll be a, a new podcast of The Source out there, which you can find at thesourceshow.org. Um, and, uh, you know, you can also follow me on Twitter at, uh, uh, at Aaron Newcomb or Facebook, Aaron Newcomb or Aaron Newcomb.com. Uh, so if you can remember my name, you can usually find me on the interwebs. 
Yeah, and uh, we, we talked a little bit about scale before we started the show today. Um, that's the Southern California Linux Expo, if I've, if I've got that name right. Yep. Um, it sounds really interesting. Lots of um, big Linux developments there, obviously being in California, it's prime catchment area for that. Um, so lots of, lots of cool stuff going on there. Did you, did you see any good talks or any other stuff worth mentioning? Oh, there's a lot of good talks. I mean, the keynotes were both very mm. good. We had, there was, um, uh, Lee Honeywell was there talking about hackerspaces and how hackerspaces and open source projects have a lot in common and how they kind of help each other out. Um, <clears throat> we also had the CEO of uh, Canonical there uh, doing yeah. a keynote, um, which, uh, you know, obviously if you don't know, um, Ubuntu is the, uh, uh, Canonical is the uh, kind of a parent company um, uh, over the Ubuntu project. So, uh, so uh, I've got interviews with those folks as well. Um, one of the interesting things about the uh, the conference this year is there was a lot of commercial vendors in the expo expo area, and the reason they were there is because they were hiring, <clears throat> which is really yeah. good news I think for uh, people mm. in the tech industry and uh, software developers and, and people involved in open source projects. Um, there's a high uh, degree of interest right now in. Uh, open source uh, uh, um, people that work in the open source projects uh, to come on board and work for some of these uh, some of these commercial companies because they know the caliber of people is quite high. So I was very mm. very interested to see that on the on the show floor this year. Yeah, that, that's great news, obviously, for anyone involved in uh, in open source and so on. And uh, it does seem to be a very healthy sector at the moment. I, uh, I'm obviously, I'm completely biased uh, in this, <laughs> but, I, but I have been told by friends in the Silicon Valley area and so on that, that Linux hiring and open source hiring in general is still very strong, so that, that's good to know. Um, excellent. So thanks very much for, for coming in and joining us again, Aaron. Always a pleasure to speak to you. Anytime. And, uh, yep. Yeah, and we'll keep we'll keep an eye out for the, uh, the, the source show with all those cool interviews from Scale, so make sure you keep an eye out for that. So we'll uh, see you again for another Floss Weekly. Take care.